So uh, we are in the coming. We're really kind of coming to the end of this series. Um, we'll probably have three or four more uh, lessons, if you will. Um, and the name of our series is "What We Really Need." We're looking at John 17 and verses 21 to 23. Now, of course, this is related. Uh, in, even if you look at the, the beginning of verse 21, it's the middle of a sentence. So, uh, you know, definitely we've got to go back at least to verse 20 and really we've got to see if we can fit the thing in the whole thing. Um, because when you're studying the Bible, just like when you're studying any document, you don't want to uh, take things out of their context. Uh, you don't understand things correctly if you uh, don't understand them in their context. And when we're studying the Bible, there's uh, the context of the text itself, like chapter 17 of the book of John. Uh, but we don't understand that right if we don't understand the book of John. And we don't understand that right if we don't understand the writings of John more broadly. The book of John, the epistles of John, the book of Revelation. So you help, if you understand all those things, you sort of get inside the mind of the apostle. And of course, that is in the context of the New Testament. So in order to understand these verses, we have to understand the Bible. How's that project going for you? Uh, that was just a plug for you to uh, maybe do some work. You're, you're allowed to actually uh, read the Bible on your own. And here's my recommendation for Bible reading. I do think it's a really good idea just to read the Bible as a whole thing from the beginning to the end. That's a pretty good project. It might take you a few days. Um, <clears throat> if you did nothing else during those days, it would take a few days if you're a pretty fast reader. I recommend reading the Bible fast, not slow, if your project is to read the Bible. In other words, when you start at the book of Genesis, the first part of the book of Genesis is kind of interesting. Uh, and really, I guess the whole book of Genesis is pretty interesting. And when you get to the book of Leviticus, it's not so interesting. In fact, because you're not an ancient Hebrew, there's a lot of things there that you don't understand because you're not the person this was written for. Uh, so what do you do? Keep going. That's what you do. So it's a simple goal I recommend. I don't know how I got started on this. I've got a proposal for you afterwards to talk about. Okay. Uh, reading the Bible. Oh, good. Uh, you, uh, here, what I recommend your goal should be when you're reading through the Bible is simply to get to know what's in there. Not to understand everything, but to just know what's in there. 
Uh, so you can be reading Leviticus and you can understand it's uh, about the establishment of Israel in, in the days of Moses, you know, and that's, a, so you can just kind of know that and see what all's in there. And then as you go, you get something like the big picture of the Bible. The other thing I would say is you want to know that the whole Bible is focused on the person of Jesus. Even the book of Leviticus is aimed at him. So it's good to sort of have that in the back of your head. Uh, well, anyway, Bill, what's your proposal? Well, uh, I was going to talk to you in uh, some length about it, but I read the Bible through a couple of times the way it's put in the book. Mm-hmm. And I got confused with this king, and then a week later, there he is again, and then a month later, there he is again, and sometimes it's anyhow. So what I found was a way to read through the Bible chronologically. Yeah. So that you get all of King Jehoshaphat. Together. Together. And yeah. you get all of David together. And even the Gospels, you get this parable from Matthew, and you get this parable from, from Mark, and they're sometimes a little different, sometimes they're verbatim. So what I have is, it takes two years to read the Bible through chronologically, and you just check off the date. You start on the 1st of January, uh, and you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you check it off, and you go through it, and in two years, you've read the whole Bible chronologically. Yeah. And so that's the way I've been doing it recently. You can read fast because, again, you're going, oh, I, I just read this. Uh, right. And so, yeah, I, I understand this, or here's the, the twist. So I was going to propose that, that for uh, Christmas uh, to make these available sure. in the church for people to pick up. Where did you find it? Uh, online. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure you could. You, know, you Google, uh, you, you can find the version that we did in one year. That's a lot every session. Yeah. For me, yeah, two, two years, years like, uh, gives you two or three chapters a day, which is a, a bite-sized piece. But anyhow, this one's blank, and we can make copies and put them in the back of the church or whatever you want to do. But I found that very helpful to read the Bible through chronologically. Yeah. And you can see when you get behind, sometimes you have to read four <laughs> chapters because you didn't do the the fourth that you go on. That's the question. Is that based on just uh, the Old Testament? No, Old and New. The books of the Bible are not arranged in chronological order. Well, at least not entirely. And there's repetition. You know, like if you think about the Gospels, there are all four of them are telling the same story. Well, they're telling the, the, they're presenting the life of Christ in one way or another. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually overlap. Uh, there's every reason to believe they're based on one another in some sense. Uh, so, you know, the events, you know, Matthew goes through the events, and Mark goes through the events, and then Luke goes through. So if you were going to arrange that in chronological order, you'd have to put them next to each other, right? Uh, the book of Job, for example, uh, the story of Job actually takes place about the same time as the story of Abraham. 
So uh, I'm not sure where Job comes in this particular plan, but it, it comes in the middle of the book of Genesis someplace. So yeah, that's, that's, and then you'd get a sense of the story. Also the Kings and Chronicles, there's a lot of overlap between those. Exactly, right. Job, Job actually starts on the 7th of, of January. Yeah. Uh, right there in Genesis. And right. You go back to Genesis 12 on the 26th of January. So they put Job before Abraham, which is probably right. Yeah. They're, they're roughly contemporary. I think Job is Now, my other recommendation is don't worry too much about the calendar. It'd be okay to, if you, if you think, well, I want to get through this in two years, then you better stick to the calendar. But what if you have a, you know, some kind of lapse and you get a month behind? Well, just pick up where you left off and keep going. And, you know, there's not any, there's no rule in the Bible that says you got to read it in two years. So uh, I like the idea of reading it in two years because that's doable and you'll get the whole thing done. <laughs> you know, it won't take your whole life. Uh, but anyway, we didn't come here this morning to talk no, about reading the Bible, but uh, that's okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Perfect. I'll probably make it look pretty. <laughs> so uh, what we're talking about is reading John 17, verses 21 to 23. And the theme of our study is what we really need. So here in John 17, Jesus is praying for us. I just want you to stop for a moment and think that we have a recorded text of Jesus, our Savior, the Lord, the eternal Son of God, praying to the Father for us. Now, whatever he's praying must be something that we really need. Jesus is looking to the Father. Jesus, the man Jesus, the eternal Son made flesh, always prays. In other words, he sees the Father as the provider. He trusts God. And in this case, what he's asking is something for the Father to give to us. How do we know it's us? Because in the context, verse 20, we read, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is, these disciples sitting here in front of me right now, but for those also <clears throat> who believe in me through their word. Well, that includes every Christian believer in the history of the world. So that includes you and me. Okay, so now uh, we've, we've already looked at several of these requests and last time we looked at the, this last time was in October, but we saw this, we talked about this idea of sanctify them in the truth. So the the Lord Jesus prayed that the Father would set us apart. That is, 
in a certain sense, distinguish his people from people. Uh, and we're not going to go through that whole lesson again. Uh, so he says then in verse 20, I don't ask just for the, these disciples in the room, but also for everyone who ever believes through their word, that, verse 21, they may all be one. So that's a very interesting thing to pray. That all believers throughout history would be one. That means that I would be one with the Apostle John. Not just with you, but with all Christian, all Christian believers. The whole church. Now, <clears throat> one thing we should notice is that in uh, the book of Ephesians, this prayer, there's a description of the answer to this prayer. Uh, chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, verse 14, we read this, For he himself is our peace, who made both one, and here he's talking about both Jews and Gentiles. One, he made both one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the disagreement, the, uh, what's the word I'm searching for, the animosity between groups. Uh, Oh, now I lost my place. Um, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one. One new man thus establishing peace, and he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy, a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And of course, this is a big emphasis in the book of Ephesians. And uh, when he gets to chapter 4 and he's encouraging the Ephesian believers to... Uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, how do you reflect the reality in life? How do you reflect the reality of the good news? The answer to that question is being diligent to preserve the unity, the oneness. So here in Ephesians, our being one 
is an established fact, a reality that has occurred. And yet, it's a reality that we don't fully realize in the practicalities of our life together. Yet, there is one body of Christ. That, that's simply true. So we are in one family of God. We are one temple of God. We are brothers and sisters together in the body of Christ. Uh, so there's a very real sense in which this prayer of Jesus has been answered in the atonement in the cross. He, in his death, we were all united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So there's a very real sense in which we are already one. So, he goes on. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that they may be one, just as we are one. Oh, now that's a level of oneness. We don't understand very well, I guess. How one is God? <laughs> the uh, elementary statement of the Bible is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. But we know also that the Lord is a tri-unity. Uh, three persons, one God. We are in over our heads now, are we not? We, this is like, well, we're, we're used to one person per being. I'm one person per being, you're one person per being. That we, that we get. Three persons in one being we don't really get, but that's what the scripture clearly shows. That they may all be one just as we are one. We, plural, are one, singular. So how are the Father and the Son one? Because the same sort of unity that they have, Jesus seeks in this prayer for us. And he's not just talking about our oneness with each other. He's not saying that their oneness with each other will be as good as our oneness with each other. Or the same type of oneness. He's saying it will actually be the same oneness. Because that's what he says. You are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. So it's not just one, we're one thing. It's we're the same one thing that they are. So there's 
the most amazing thing about the gospel is that in, in uh, the work of Christ, we are actually caught up into the fellowship of the Trinity itself. Uh, that's, that is amazing. And it's a reflection of the ancient, the most ancient statement of God about us, that we would be made in his image, in his likeness, to bear his image, to operate in fellowship, to, to, and not just operate in it, but to exist out of the fellowship of God and to extend that fellowship into the creation. Wow. Now, what we have on, the, on your handout here is just a list of points from the book of John about the unity of the Father and the Son. Now, so we can go through this fairly quickly, maybe, if it's possible for me to go through anything fairly quickly. Um, in John chapter 1, verse 18, we read this, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, God's one and only, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained or exposited or revealed God. How do we see God? How do we understand God in the presence of the Son of God, the only begotten of God? Uh, in chapter 7, probably don't have time to go through all these. Jesus says, I know him. He's referring to the one who sent him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The son knows and loves the father. In chapter 14. Got to read the whole sentence. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. Is that get up, let's go is the get up and let's go to the garden of Gethsemane. This is the... This is the beginning of the speech we're at the end of in chapter 17. Uh, Jesus loves the Father, and that's why he carries out the Father's desires. In verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus will show himself, and when he shows himself, he's showing God. Uh, this is what he said earlier in this chapter when Philip says, just show us the Father. Jesus says, what do you think I've been doing? You've seen me, you've seen him. That's the oneness. 
The Son knows and loves the Father. Jesus in chapter 8, he said, uh, well, we read this, verse 19. So they were saying to him, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Um, so the son knows and loves the father. The son was sanctified by the father. We read about that in chapter 10 in the book of John. Chapter 10, verse 36 I've got to start with verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So the point we're gathering from that is the Father sanctified the Son for, to be sent and we talked about this last time in Jesus' prayer that God would sanctify us. We also are sanctified to be sent. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the Son is sanctified by the Father. The Son was sent by the Father, as we just mentioned, number three there. The Son proceeds from the Father. Now, that's an ancient, that may be the most ancient claim of the Christian faith. <laughs> the Son of God eternally proceeds from the Father. That's what we mean when we call him the only begotten. In fact, the ancient creed used to say it like this, begotten, not made. The Son of God is not a created being. He's eternal. He has always been, and he has always been in the relationship of Son to Father, to the Father God. In fact, such a relationship that there is only one God and yet three persons. And so the Son, the ancient creed says, eternally proceeds from the Father. The Son comes from the Father, but he never started coming from the Father. You get it? <laughs> no, but okay, that's about as good as we can do. The Son comes from the Father, and he always has. That relation never had a beginning. Now we have the hardest time thinking of anything not having a beginning. And of course, that is an essential claim about God that he's the eternal one. Something has to exist without a beginning or nothing can exist. Something must be eternal. The claim of the scripture is the eternal thing is God. And the eternal thing is a, is a fellowship of three persons in one being, Father, Son, Spirit. By the way, we do also say in the ancient creed, the same one, 
that the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, so, okay. In that formulation, the Son does not proceed from the Spirit, but from the Father. And this is an eternal relationship. It's always been. There's never a beginning to that. Now, this is what we read in verse 18 of chapter 1. Just read it again now, because... No one has seen God at any time. Now, who's that talking about? That's the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, he's always been under the wing, so to speak, of the Father. He has explained the Father. He proceeds from the Father. In chapter 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So the Son proceeds from the Father. The Number five, the Son is the Word and speaks the words of the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Wait. <laughs> uh, now remember, we're talking about the Trinity, and when we do that, we always end up using language that we can't even really know exactly what we mean by it. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And this relation existed already in the beginning. You know, in Genesis, there's that other in the beginning expression. It says, in the beginning, God created. So God was before the beginning. God, the Word, was with God, the Father, the Speaker, the Source, already in the beginning. And then we go on, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. That is the Word. That is the Eternal Son. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. One of the things that tells you is he did not come into being. Everything that came into being was the consequence of his creative work. So the Father God creates all things through the agency of the word. And you, in Genesis, this is sort of explicit when God says, God speaks and things are made. 
How does God make everything out of nothing? By the exercise of his word. And in John, we find out that his word is actually the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Wow. He's the word of God and he speaks the word of God. And as you go through the book of John, you, you, you hear Jesus say this repeatedly. I don't say my own words. I say his words. I say what he gives me to say. I do what he gives me to do. There is such a level of unity. There's a complete agreement between the two persons. And we, of course, would include the third person of the Trinity as well in that agreement. Uh, But here we're talking explicitly about the relation between the Father and the Son. When we get to uh, chapter 10 especially, we find the Father executing this, or with the Son, sorry, is the one who executes the Father's direction or mandate. And Jesus says this particularly, I have a mandate, a commandment from the Father. I have been given the authority to carry out certain things in his uh, incarnation. So in chapter 10, Verse 18, no one, I'm sorry, I got to read this. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one is taking it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. That word authority is like this. I have a mandate, a commission from the father to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So the father's mandate is the sacrifice of the son. And the son says he's in agreement. (laughs) This isn't, well, I wish I didn't have to, but he's making me. (coughs) Because there's there's total unity. There's complete agreement. In chapter 12, I know that his commandment, that's the same word, that's this word that means like mandate, this standing order is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So he's saying again, I don't speak on my own initiative. The Father gives me, has given me a commandment. His commandment is eternal life. Now, remember, his commandment also was to lay down my life and to take it up again. And then in chapter 17, we read, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. How do we know the Father? We know Him. So there's this extension of the fellowship of God in this mandate. Now, there's a big list here, and we're not going to take the time to 
talk about everything in this list with the Son executing the Father's mandate. That's why I've just given it to you and the scripture references. The, the uh, Son loves the Father's sheep. The Father gives the Son his sheep. The Son leads the sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Uh, the Son lays down his life for the flock of God and takes it up again. Uh, that's the text we've already read. 1 John 3.16 is the text where we said, this is how you know what love is. God sent his Son uh, to give his life, to sacrifice for sin. Uh, the Son gives the Father's sheep eternal life. That's explicit in chapter 10. And then the Son keeps the sheep. This is uh, also the Father. Uh, Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And uh, here in chapter 17, part of the prayer we already read is, Father, keep them. I've been keeping them while they're here. Now I'm going back to you. Please, you keep them. How does he do that? I'm pretty sure it's through the sending of the Spirit, the third person. Uh, so he keeps the Father's sheep and he raises them in the end in chapter 6. He says, I don't lose a single one of them. I raise them up on the last day. So this is the Son carrying out the mandate he has received from the Father. So there's a total unity in their work together in our redemption. And then finally, the Son returns to the Father. In fact, that's the beginning of this sermon, the Upper Room Discourse, that this is the closing prayer of that we're looking at in chapter 17. In chapter 13, he said, it says, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from the Father and was going back to the Father, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, got a towel, washed their feet. And that was the beginning of this conversation. <laughs> the, the trouble he got into with Peter especially, but pretty sure Peter speaks for the group uh, over him being the one washing everyone's feet. And then we had the discussion of just show us the Father. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going away. And they say, go away, you can't, you can't leave. You know, it's kind of an argument. So the Son is sent, the Son comes, the Son carries out this mandate. All of this is in this doctrine of the Trinity that we call the perichoresis. <laughs> the perichoresis is an essential element of the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. The doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine of unity. There's only one God. It's a doctrine of diversity. There's three persons. 
Uh, there's a third element, uh, it's just getting out of my head right now. And then there's this idea called perichoresis. Perichoresis means dancing around. <laughs> That's literally how the peri means around, like a perimeter is around. And uh, choresis is a word for dancing. So this is a doc one of the essential elements of the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine of perichoresis, which means that all three persons of the Trinity are intimately involved in all the activities of God. They are dancing together so that in our redemption, the Son is sent by the Father. The Son works the... Uh, Atonement. Well, who's he atoning us to? The Father. And the Spirit works in him to trust the Father. This is in early in the book of John, chapter 4, I want to say, where the, maybe chapter 3, where God gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. So Jesus knows exactly what it means to walk in the Spirit. Uh, so even in this carrying out of the mandate, the Spirit of God is operating in the Son of God from the Father God. And this is, if you ask, how does Jesus know what the Father says? It's communicated in the Spirit. There's all, they're all working. And if you think about creation, the, in the beginning was the Word. Well, when God made Adam, God breathed, and he became, that's the spirit. And Adam became a living person. So the spirit of God, the son of God, the father God, they are all involved, though all in some identifiable way. So somehow they are one and three. And that is the sort of unity Jesus is asking for, for his disciples, including us. So that means we become one, we experience some level of real unity without losing our individual identities. This, I think, is illustrated in the idea of the body of Christ, where each part has a part to make a whole. And your part is not exactly the same as mine. It's all different. There's one of this, and there's one of that, and there's you, me, and each of us. And yet, in the operation of the body, in the empowerment and direction of the Spirit in our union with the Son before the Father, we are one. And that's what Jesus says in this prayer. We need it. We need it. I think I, think I don't realize how much I need this. 
This is not a need I'm really conscious of a lot of the time. Sometimes I think everything is kind of depending on me, one way or another. And yet the scripture encourages us to think as an us and not as a you and a me. This is sort of what we were talking about on Sunday when we were talking about brotherly love must remain. That we extend the grace of God, we exercise the grace of God in our relationships with each other and each in a sort of unique way. Like uh, yesterday we had the service for Dita and I think, uh, yeah, Dita had a really genuine expression of the love of Christ. Not that, that he's the source of that. And yet her exercise of it was a, served as a bonding agent in our whole church. And each of us has that sort of opportunity in Christ. And so that's the, the calling. And, you know, there's a certain sense, as we noted, in which that is an actually accomplished fact. We are together in the body of Christ. Yet, like many things in this age, it's already and it's not yet. It's an accomplished fact and we could grow into it more. Uh, so to me, it's an interesting question to ask, how is our oneness with one another and with God like this unity of the Father and the Son? Well, our unity lies in the activating work of the Spirit to uh, encourage us by the Word to attention to Christ. This is the message of the book of Hebrews. Draw near, fix your eyes, pay attention to Christ. And so we begin out of this reconciled relationship to God by the work of Christ. And then we observe that that's a thing he did for all of us as one thing. That's what it said in Ephesians. He reconciled us as one body to God by the work of his cross. So he actually put us together and then took that whole thing and reconciles it to God. <laughs> wow. So it's not just about me and you and him and her. It's not just the salvation of each of us into some sort of independently operating relation to God. No, it's, a, it's an us. And it's, it's, it needs to be an us. Because for us to really exhibit Christ requires the whole body. Now, for some, you know, if I'm by myself out in the world, I might be the thing, the only way anybody get, might get to see Jesus that day. But I take you with me into that. And that's however good of you I might give somebody of Christ, 
it's not the whole picture. Just like, a, sorry, I used this illustration maybe too much, but if you found my finger lying by the side of the road, you could tell it was my finger. You could do some DNA analysis or take the fingerprint off of it, and you'd know it belonged to me. But you wouldn't know me. How do we represent Christ in the world? By putting the fingers out into the world? No, by the us of it. The one, this is why we need it. And Jesus says it right here. <laughs> uh, so that the world may believe that you sent me. How does the world see Christ? Well, through the body of Christ. And not just through each of us, but through the us of us. So that if someone comes into the church, Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples. By the love you have for each other. Which to me, it was a surprise when I first noticed this. Like, oh, so it's not about how well we love the people in the world. It's about how well we love each other. That identifies us as his. And of course, that's going to reflect into the world. So the oneness of the disciples is an essential part of the whole program, if we wanted to call it that. So as we enjoy his love, as we are overwhelmed by his grace, so we are moved to take the risks involved in putting these things on display in the world, uh, to love each other, to show grace, uh, to forgive each other, to... Uh, encourage each other to, as Hebrews says, consider one another, think carefully about one another in order to encourage love and good works. Now, this is, as everything is, in the end, uh, an issue of faith, of trust. Jesus had this encounter with this guy. And uh, this guy had a son who had this problem with seizures. Scripture tells us that his problem was uh, actually a problem of demonic possession. And so Jesus says, this guy comes to see Jesus brings the kid with him, and Jesus says, how long has this been happening? And he says, from childhood. It's often thrown him into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if? Oh. <laughs> Uh, if all things are possible to him who believes. And then this father said, I'm 
I can't tell you how grateful I am that this sentence is in the scripture. This guy says, he cried out. <laughs> he cried out. And like, uh, like, I think he was startled by that challenge. And he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so for us, when we think about this prayer, this thing we need, the unity that we need, and that the world needs in us, uh, this is a question of, do we, are we trusting in the unity that we have before with God by the work of Christ? This, this sometimes, you know, you just look around and you think, yeah, I don't even like that guy. I can't imagine being in any relationship you'd call unity with him. Well, if we walk in faith, we experience the fruit of the spirit of that faith in our lives. It's a trust issue, like everything is a trust issue. As we trust in Him, as we experience and uh, enjoy His goodness in our salvation, then it becomes, an, it opens us up to Him and to every, everyone else. Then I'm capable of paying the price of loving other people. Even people who return, you know, punishment for love. Uh, and that is what we really need. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Uh, wow, I've been going a long time. Sorry. Then the, the thing I also want to remember when I think about Jesus praying something, the answer is going to be yes. The answer is going to be yes. Because Jesus is praying for the thing we need that God intends to deliver. So I think let us engage in the yes, the amen to this prayer. To say, in God, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. So we say, amen. <laughs> and we say amen by walking in the unity that he has purchased for us. I guess I'll stop there. Any questions or comments? <laughs> <coughs> Yeah, you said that God was always there. It's hard to get your, your mind around <laughs> something that was always there. It was always created. We have to have understand or get away from understanding that something can be like that. I, I can't imagine that. But the other side of it is if God was created or never created but was there, how about us 
since it says in Scripture that Jesus said, I, I knew you before you ever were born. And this is a spirit world. And, and when, were we always there? No, we came into being. So we are in the, in that text in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. All things came into being. Uh, so uh, we are created beings. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and He created this, 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 and this. And then He said, Let us make man. There, there's no man before He makes man. Uh, and so He but, but it formed. Was not. No. No. He formed Adam out of the dust, and then breathed. That's the Spirit of God turning the body of Adam into a living soul, a man. So there's a, a creation of man. So now the, the question then is, what does he mean when he says, I knew you before I made you? Which he certainly says. In fact, it says in Ephesians that he... Uh, I, I don't want to misquote it. That uh, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So he chose each of us for salvation before he made even the the before Genesis one one. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. So, in what sense did he know us? Well, in the same sense that he knows things that haven't happened yet that will happen. Uh, in, this, in, the, in that exact same sense. In other words, everything that comes to be, comes to be out of the creation of God. Except God isn't in that category. God's the only eternally existing thing. And everything else is made by him. Well, he certainly knows exactly what he intends to make, to do, to see happening in the world. Everything happens according to his sovereign plan. So there's every reason to say he knew me before he made me. He knew me. Even now, he knows me better than I do, more completely than I think, and not just me as I am right this minute, but me as I will be five years from now. Okay, well, if we just extrapolate that back all the way to before the foundation of the world, he knew me, intended to save me in Christ before he even started on anything. But nothing eternally exists 
Accept God. That is really essential. (laughs) There's only one thing that just is without a beginning. And that is God, because everything else was made by Him. So, well, we don't understand a thing that has no beginning, uh, which is to me another indicator that we are not in that category. Uh, so, it's God didn't bank uh, make a bank of spirits and then embody that's actually this is actually a key concept in Mormonism that God created that we're all like some kind of angel that God puts in a human body whenever we're conceived. Now human beings are made in the conceiving act. And so I didn't exist in any sense except as in the plan of God. I didn't, I was known, but I didn't exist until I was conceived. Right. Then the question is, how do you know something that is not that? Well, God knows. God knows everything that's not there. And God knows, God, look, God's knowledge is comprehensive. This is why we call him omniscient. And what we mean by that is he knows everything that is. He knows everything that will be. He also knows everything that could have been, but wasn't. None of which exists. But, you know, we have this modern idea of this sort of parallel universe thing. Parallel universes are not there but God knows every last one of them. So there's one that he made, but he also knows everything that might have. I mean, we can't get our brains to think of this stuff in any comprehensive way. But yeah, when we say God knew us before he made us, we don't mean we existed then. In fact, we mean we didn't. Because at some point he made us, and that's when we came to be. So we don't have being until that moment. We certainly, we certainly exist in the plan of God, if, if you call it. But there's a very distinct difference between uh, God having something in mind and that thing actually coming into existence. That's an important distinction. If that extinction doesn't exist, then it makes no sense to say, in the beginning, God created. Am I helping? <laughs> I was uh, brought up in the Presbyterian Church and mm-hmm. many discussions of predestination. Yeah. A hard time as a teenager understanding that we were predestined to this or predestined to that. Yeah. Until a preacher said, don't use predestination use foreknowledge. Uh, that God knew, knows everything that you're going to do good, and what good. you're going to become. That's good. That doesn't mean that you don't have free will and <coughs> that you can't make choices. He just knows what choice you're going to make. He has foreknowledge of what you're predestined. So I've sort of yeah. thrown that word 
This might help, but the scripture uses the word predestined. And God knowing something in advance is not much different from God deciding something in advance because it's God. So we don't fully escape the problem by just stepping it back one step to say, well, uh, God chose you because he knew what you would choose. Uh, Well, we're just going to have to step back on that again. God chose you. And it was because he chose you that you made not the other way around. Uh, now, I don't, wouldn't want to argue about how hard that is to understand. That's hard to understand. Uh, and here's, how, here's where, it, for me, it sort of comes down. You're going to have to embrace some mystery if you're going to be a biblical Christian. If you're going to trust the God who's presented to us in the Bible, you're going to have to trust him with stuff you don't get. And what, one of the things we don't get very well, and I haven't found anybody who's logically woven it together in a way that's fully satisfying to me, is the Bible clearly says two things. One, God's sovereignty is absolute and comprehensive. In other words, if something happens, it is because God determined that it would happen. (laughs) He ordains everything. Or he's not the God of the Bible. So that means he chose you before the foundation of the world. The second thing the Bible says is, you, you, so, by the way, that ordination of all things includes he will save you and he will not save that guy. I know that's hard to accept, but that's what the scripture says. Then the, the second thing, though, it says is <laughs> you determined to trust in the finished work of the cross of Christ And by that determination, that choice you made, you received the salvation that he provides. You chose, and nobody made you, including God. He didn't, he doesn't, you, well, you remember doing this, I'm sure. You came to trust him. So the Bible says these two things. One, God has created humanity with actual agency. And I'd rather use that word agency than the term free will because the term free will, actually what it means depends on who's saying it. But agency means the capacity to make actually consequential decisions. And God's own agency rules in every instance. And somehow, within his comprehensive sovereignty, there is space for our agency.
So I make my decisions and I make them and he holds me responsible for them. And at the same time, I have to say, I make them in exactly the way he determined I would before anything was. I have to, if I'm going to read the Bible, the Bible says both of these things on just about every page. And so one of the challenge, one of our challenges of faith is <laughs> how do we hold these two things that I can't fit together together? How do I, well, I say both must be true. And in fact, for me personally, I would say this, if I, have, if I hedge on either one of these things, I end up with a worse problem. If God's not, if people decide whether they will be saved and God doesn't, then God could fail. And I don't want a, a God that in, from, I don't think a person being that can fail can qualify to be called God. God, if God just, if Jesus just dies on the cross hoping that some of us might trust him, then he doesn't actually accomplish anything. It depends on me and not him. That, that, that's not well, I, that's not the story you read in the Bible at all. So I end up, if I hedge on God's comprehensive sovereignty, I end up with a worse problem. Like, okay, we sort of hope God's going to make everything right one day. I hope he can pull it off. What if he can't? And a God that's not comp sovereign in a comprehensive way may not be all-powerful. <laughs> well, I guess I would say he can't be all-powerful if he's not comprehensively sovereign. At the same time, if I hedge on our agency, then God's just an arbitrary and capricious God. And there's no sense talking about morality at all. Because we don't actually, we're just, we're this sort of uh, cog in the machine that just grinds on. Uh, and so I, God can't hold me responsible for my sin if I don't have agency in my decisions. Oh, and by the way, we can't really hold each other responsible either. So, my, one of the, this is all a sort of a philosophical way of getting to the same point the Bible gets to, which is, no, things are determined and things are determinable. Things God has decided, and so do you. Okay. <laughs> Where I end up is, okay. 
I don't think anybody's confused. No? Good. Good. <laughs> and for me, I think, okay, well, we're dealing with God here, so okay, a little... If I, if I had God all up inside my head, then... Yeah, and I'm not going to worship that God that I'm capable of figuring out. He's smaller than me. Well, it says nobody's ever seen, in that you just read, nobody's ever seen God. But yet, earlier in Genesis, Moses went up on the mountain to get mm. the Ten Commandments. Uh, God was up there, and he saw the back of God. He never saw God's face. Well, the scripture also says that God met with Moses face to face. And it describes Abraham meeting God face to face and various other people. How do we account for that? And he is often described as invisible as he is in that text in, in, uh, in John. No one has seen him at any time. That's a very comprehensive statement. So how do we account for, yeah, but Moses did. Adam did. Abraham did. How do we account for that? The answer to that question is in Colossians, among other places, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. The answer is also in John 14. Show us the Father. How can you ask me, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen him. So who was Moses meeting with? Jesus. The Son. Not Jesus. We just have to be careful. Not Jesus, but the Son the only begotten, the eternal son, because Jesus isn't Jesus until Mary gives birth. But yeah, the, yeah. And who, who was walking in the garden with Adam? The son, the visible God. The son is the, is the executive of the father, the, the representation of the father in creation. And by the way, when God says, let us make man in our image, one way of reading that is he's really ultimately talking about Jesus. When the image of God in humanity is actually realized. And so Paul writes in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. So how do we, how does anyone see God? the only begotten, he's explained him. Good question. <laughs> well, everybody that came to the meeting this morning doesn't have to go to church tomorrow. We've already what do you say? <laughs> Why does he say stuff like that? Of course you have to come to church tomorrow. <laughs> At tomorrow you'll get even more of this fantastic stuff. <laughs> uh, 
It sounds to me like we're done. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for such great time of fellowship and uh, the great food. Thanks for Frankie preparing for us. Pray your blessing on him. Uh, Lord, we pray you give us a good day this, today uh, until we see each other again tomorrow. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.